Okay. I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Dr. Amesh Adalja, a specialist uh, on infectious diseases with Johns Hopkins uh, uh, University. And uh, we're doing a follow-up about the uh, coronavirus and the spread of the pandemic and the progress of the pandemic and hopefully how it's eventually going to end. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So the first thing I want to know is what do we know now? Because we talked a couple of weeks ago, about three weeks ago, we talked about this. And I'm sure there's a lot more information now available about uh, how fast the coronavirus is spreading, uh, the means by which it spreads. I want to sort of go back to cover some of that because I think that's something of, of great sort of practical interest to a lot of people. One of the things that, that I've been noticing is that there's been a lot of re upward estimates revising on, on the transmissibility of this, how contagious the coronavirus is. Yeah, so what we have to remember is that this is a novel virus that has not been in human populations. So everybody is technically susceptible to this. And then it spreads efficiently through the respiratory route. That means coughs and sneezes uh, that directly land on people or, or land on surfaces that people touch. And because they're so little population immunity that makes it very contagious and that's why this is going to infect more people than for example the seasonal flu does and if you just have a small proportion of those individuals that need to go to the hospital or, or end up with severe disease that's still a, a small percentage of a big number is still a big number and that's what we're dealing with here is that this spreads very rapidly especially in places that have high population densities like new york city and you can have explosive outbreaks that can overwhelm your healthcare system if you don't control them well now, the, one of the controversies over this is the question of, you know, some of the early advice saying, oh, you don't need a mask. And now they're saying, yeah, maybe you should have a mask and even a homemade mask would do. What happens with the messaging on that? Because some people said, oh, this was a noble lie that they told to prevent people from panic buying masks. If, if that was the case, by the way, it didn't work because people already did that. But what was the, the thinking in terms of how does it spread? What are the things that will protect you from it? So this is a complicated question, and there is no easy answer or conspiracy theory behind it. So I'll try and unpack it all for you. So there's one thing. So when we're taking care of patients in the hospital that have a respiratory infection that spreads through the droplet route, like influenza, like the coronavirus, like many other viruses, healthcare workers wear a surgical mask as well as eye protection, a gown and gloves to prevent themselves from getting infected. They wear that for a short transient period of time when they're seeing the patient. And that's, that's protective when you're within three to six feet of the patient. And, and that's what we do in healthcare settings. When we have a sick patient, someone who's coughing and sneezing themselves, and they have to go out in the hallway of the hospital to maybe get a, a chest x-ray or something like that, we mask them so that when they cough and sneeze, it doesn't disseminate particles. But the thing is, there have been multiple studies when the general public tries to wear surgical masks or procedure masks, and there hasn't been any definitive study that's shown that they actually decrease transmission. This has been studied a long time. They've done it for influenza season on college campuses and in getting people to keep a log of how frequently they're wearing these things. And they don't necessarily wear them that well, and they can't keep them on. They're often taking them off, putting their hands underneath them, uh, touching their face, scratching their eyes, taking them off to, to talk on their phone. Uh, now people have face recognition on their phones. It doesn't work with the mask on. People are taking them all off. And they don't, and they don't necessarily have that same impact as when a healthcare worker wears it for like a three-minute encounter with the patient. And the issue was that people were buying them and panic buying them, and 
and actually causing shortages. And these were not just the surgical masks, but even N95 masks, which are definitely not needed by the general public in most situations. So that's where it stood. And what's happened in the last couple of days is you've seen some shifting guidance. And, and this is somewhat controversial in my field, and it isn't quite settled science. What it is is that there are individuals that have this coronavirus that don't know they have it and maybe have zero symptoms. They're, they're just infected with it, and they're kind of a carrier. And they may be responsible for some element of transmission. And that transmission has occurred not in general settings, but maybe in a household where people may have intimate contact, sharing uh, utensils, talking to each other very closely. Or, for example, in choir practice where people are singing and that singing generates particles that are, are not really representative of what you see on the street when you're walking by somebody. So based on those types of studies, they change their guidance saying people should wear a mask if they're going to be outside because maybe they, they're one of those asymptomatic carriers and this mask will prevent them from transmitting it to others. But then you had to say, we don't want people to buy hospital-grade masks because we're worried about shortages in parts of the country so they can make a homemade mask. And I worry that this isn't the best recommendation, and I can see how the guidance is viewed as the public as some kind of a, a conspiracy because it did shift, and all that nuance isn't there when you hear a soundbite about wear a mask now. But there are some caveats because there are people that wear, will wear these masks and, think, and get a false sense of security. I think they don't have to do social distancing. think they don't have to wash their hands. You have to think of if you're going to wear a mask, and it should be a homemade mask, you have to think of it only as an additive. And it's not a panacea, and it may not even work uh, to prevent you from giving it to other people. And you have to be careful about not infecting other people with your mask. So suppose you are one of those asymptomatic carriers, and you're kind of not putting your mask in the proper place and, and putting it down down somewhere on your couch and somebody else picks it up. There's, there's all kinds of negative consequences that can happen. So I'm not a big fan of the general public wearing masks, although the guidance has changed, and there's a lot of nuance. And new studies are coming out showing that it doesn't necessarily block the particles as well as people think that it does mm -hmm. if you are somebody that has coughs and sneezes, let alone someone who's just breathing uh, and, and having, the, having the virus. So this is, a, this is a big debate going on in my field right now, and it's, and it's kind of acrimonious, and there's a lot of sides being drawn. Okay. I'll, I'll confess that I had a couple N95 masks that buried on a shelf in the back of my wood shop, and I, I wore them when going out grocery shopping, but I also recognize that I'm being somewhat paranoid doing that. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, um, now, th it does bring up the issue, though, of one of the distinctive aspects of the coronavirus is that seems to be that issue of asymptomatic carriers that I saw a study out there saying that uh, the viral load is actually heaviest at the very early onset of disease where somebody's either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Maybe they're just starting to feel a little rotten, but they don't really sure they're sick yet. And that the viral load is actually very heavy at the front. And that's as opposed to, I think, I think SARS is a big difference on that, that it wasn't uh, highly contagious until someone was very, was very ill. Yeah, so there are some differences, and we do think that viral load, especially in your nasal passages, correlates with transmissibility and contagiousness. And, and what we see is with this virus, even though it's so highly related to the SARS virus, uh, does have a distinction. And, and I think that explains why we're dealing with a, a pandemic. And with SARS, we basically had a containable epidemic, is that the nasal, the nasal secretions of people with this novel coronavirus are infectious. And it may be that the viral load is that there are people that as they get closer to being symptomatic, the viral load peaks and then the immune system hits it, hits it and then you start getting symptoms. Uh, and then the viral load falls as the immune system tries to control it. So there may be 
a, a lot of interesting stuff going on with the viral kinetics. But what I think is the important question is we know that asymptomatic transmission occurs. We don't know what proportion of individuals are transmitting it that way because if you walk by someone who's asymptomatic, it's hard to imagine how they might give it to you unless you have some kind of intimate contact or they're, they're singing or something like that that's causing them to, to emanate particles, even if they're not coughing or sneezing. They still have, you still have to have some mechanism of getting it. So that's the big question is how that's happening. And obviously, if you're sharing a fork with somebody or you live with somebody and you're talking very closely or there, there are going to be uh, there's going to be more opportunities for that rather than if you're jogging on some trail in the woods and you pass somebody by and think you're going to get it in that manner. So I do think that there are some caveats to the asymptomatic transmission and what role it's playing. OK. And, and, you know, maybe if you spend a lot of a long period of time talking closely to somebody and not observing that social distance, that's going to be increase the uh, the degree of the transmissibility. And I gather in some of the studies they've had where they're trying to track people's contacts, they look at, did you spend more than 15 minutes or more than a half an hour with somebody? Right. So it's not transient contact with somebody unless that transient contact involves some kind of special type of uh, interaction. But or somebody no, sneezes it's not, on you. Right, exactly. So it's if obviously if you're sneezed on or, or you walk by somebody in the cafeteria and you, and you stuck your finger in their food and, and, or you, you grab their fork and ate off of it, that's a different thing than if you just walk by somebody. So it's, this isn't an airborne transmission. So if you have a measles case and you walk by somebody, you could very well have gotten it because the air around them would be infectious. That, this is not the case with this virus. And if we were dealing with an airborne virus, there's lots of rumors, is this airborne, is this airborne, we would be in a very uh, horrible place right now because we know how rapidly measles can spread. And the average person with measles can infect 12 to 15 people. Um, this is probably, at best, uh, maybe two, two and a half people get infected by, by somebody. So this right. isn't so, uh, so, that. So measles, as I understand it, the virus actually gets sort of aerosolized and every breath you exhale, you're sending it out there in, and to, to get to other people. Right. So exactly. So measles is, is something that is aerosolized just by normal breathing. The people basically emanate those particles. If you get on an elevator after somebody with measles left on, that air will be infectious. When we talk about this coronavirus, there are some circumstances where it can aerosolize, but that's not in everyday life. It's in hospital settings where certain procedures are being done, people being put on certain breathing machines or, or having certain procedures done to them or getting drugs through an aerosol drug treatment like a nebulizer that you might have seen asthmatics get. That's what aerosolizes this virus. It's not aerosolizable in, in general in, in general life in a manner that actually adds to its transmission. And we've, we've seen this before because this is something that we would, you get a whole different transmission in epidemiology when you're dealing with an, a virus that's primarily spread through the airborne route versus one that's droplet. Okay. Now there, I have heard, seen some indications though, that, that this is spreading faster than originally, uh, than originally thought. And the models have been revised to say, Oh, and, and I think the Imperial college just came out with one saying that, uh, more people probably have it than you know the number of recorded cases or confirmed cases that the number at least in Europe the number of people who actually have it is probably ten to a hundred times higher, and I've heard the idea that that might actually be good news in a sense that if more people have it, then we're farther along uh, towards the process of getting, having herd immunity than than we might have thought. Yeah, that is definitely true. If we have, we know that our our diagnostic testing is understating right. the number of cases at least at least tenfold, and I think that's a couple. That's good for a couple of reasons. That means if our diagnoses are understating by tenfold, that means our hospitalization rate and our case fatality ratio are overstated by ten, by tenfold, which makes us breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief well, because and, and a lot of known, those models. We've known from the beginning that, especially with not having testing up and running, we weren't getting all the cases. 
and also with some people being asymptomatic, we're not getting all the cases. So that's sort of been baked into some of the estimates to begin with on mortality rates and hospitalization rates that, you know, the the raw numbers are have been sort of already adjusted to account for estimates of how much how many cases we're not catching. Uh, but I think is that that's getting more accurate as we go along. It, it is. The models have assumptions in them, and some of those assumptions are being changed. But I do think that there is one that I think needs to be really challenged is what the hospitalization rate is, because that's the key one to me, not the death rate, not mm-hmm. not the number of cases. It's the hospitalization rate, because that's what everything, all the economic shutdowns, all the social distancing is is basically premised on trying to preserve hospital capacity. And if the true hospitalization rate is 15 or 20 percent, that's very different than a hospitalization rate of 5 percent. So if you look at Westchester County, which did very extensive testing after they had that that explosive outbreak in New Rochelle, they tested basically a, a, a huge swath of their population, and their hospitalization rate is hovering around 5%, which is much different than the 15 to 20% that's put into models. So I think that's something to, to, uh, to think about um, when, when you look at how a hospital or a regional cent- hospital medical center is p- p- planning for cases, what hospitalization rate are they assuming? Because that really is important for, for projecting the need of ICU beds, projecting the need of ventilators. And I think that that's something that has to be challenged and continually revised as we get better and better at testing. The, the Imperial College has maybe 50% of the population. I don't know that it's 50%. I think we would have seen more of a signal if it's 50% of the population already infected. But I do think that there is a large understatement in terms of diagnostic testing. And I think we'll only get there when we can, we'll only get a good answer when we get to antibody testing and being able to go out and do what we call zero surveys, just surveying people to see how many people um, through blood spot testing have, uh, have this, uh, have antibodies to this virus and didn't know they had it. And that will help us understand where this is in the community and what type of herd immunity we have. And that will help us with social distancing decisions, knowing what, what's going on in their community level. Well, and let, let's get to the social distancing. Is social distancing working? Because we're starting to see they're past, they seem to be past the peak in Northern Italy. Uh, the rate of growth is somewhat decreasing in New York, which has been the big hot spot in the U.S. Is the social distancing having an observable effect? I believe it is having an observable effect. I mean, it's a blunt tool, but it's yeah. the only tool we have. Uh, and it do- we know that this virus thrives on people interacting with each other. And social distancing can be hard, and some people can take it too far, and some governors can have acted with a very heavy hand. But in general, the principle you know, of social distancing, even on a voluntary basis, will decrease transmission. And, and I think we're seeing that in New York, and I think everybody's breathing a sigh of relief because uh, that was what everything is keyed in upon, is whether New York City broke or not uh, in terms of its hospital capacity. Mm-hmm. And when do you think we passed the peak? I've been seeing estimates about mid-April, so really about 10 days or so from now. It's important to remember that it's going to not be a homogenous outbreak across the country that is really heterogeneous mm-hmm. depending on your city, the population density, how connected it is to other parts of the, the, the world. So I, I'm based in Pittsburgh, and right now it's, it's very light here. We have about 600 cases in the county uh, that Pittsburgh is in and about 90 or so hospitalizations and only about four deaths. It's very different than Philadelphia County, which is on the other side of the state, which has a different type of outbreak. So we will see probably peaking in New York City. I think right now we're in the peak or at the apex right now. Other places are likely to peak later because they got a later start to this and they had some time to put in mitigation uh, mitigation effects. So their peaks may be lower and may not even be noticeable. It may be more like a rolling hill. Uh, so I do think probably throughout April we're going to see peaks in different cities. But I think distinct peaks you're going to see like in New York, Detroit, New Orleans, Chicago, bigger cities with population densities that are going to behave more like New York. But other places maybe more like Pittsburgh where we don't necessarily have this noticeable spike. It may be cases get up to a top point and then they roll back down. 
Yeah, and and I think in 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 Italy, what you saw is they had this. There's a little bit of noise at the top of the peak that it goes up and down a little bit before it definitively starts to go down. Um, yeah, it's hard, and sometimes you don't know until after the fact that you've actually been in the peak because it's you're in the midst of a war. Basically, you don't you don't know what's going on until you actually look back at the data. Yeah, yeah, and you know the question that after we pass the peak, as you know, one of the things they're projecting is by the end of of this month, by the end of April. You're going to see a very dramatic drop potentially if 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 if, if these projections are correct. You're going to see a very dramatic drop down to sort of pre-crisis uh, uh, levels of infection, or at least a very manageable level of infection. And then that raises the question: What do we need to do? What's going to be required to reopen, to stop the social distancing, or to back off from the social distancing? And that uh, I think is is you've you've written a very interesting medium piece on that. So I just wanted to have you invite you to to talk about what do you think there are the requirements we're going to have to reach to be able to say, okay, we can relax the social distancing. The first thing is going to be hospital capacity. I keep coming back to that because that's the main issue that we're dealing mm -hmm. with now. So we have to make sure that our hospitals in whatever location that you're thinking about relaxing social distancing and have the ability to care for patients at whatever rate that they're going to get. That means they have enough ICU beds. They have enough mechanical ventilators. They have enough personal protective equipment. They have enough staffing and they have the ability to start operating their normal their normal functions, what, what they call quote-unquote elective surgeries, which aren't really elective. They just means you have some flexibility and time to schedule them, not, not infinite flexibility. So that has to be in place. You also have to have robust diagnostic testing. We need to get diagnostic testing at, at the level that we have it for HIV, that you can just get a test whenever you want and you get a result very quickly without any kind of hassle. There are still bureaucratic hassles to getting a test. We still are restricting who's getting tested, not from a government perspective, but from a hospital-level perspective because we're worried about supplies, the, the the reagents that you need to run the machines, mm -hmm. even the nasal swabs, all of those are not robust enough yet uh, in many parts of the world. So we want to, in many parts of the country, we want to make sure that we have a diagnostic testing uh, plan in place to be able to find the cases and isolate them because we are going to get more cases when you relax social distancing. It's a matter of, it's, it's, it's a fact. And we need to be able to find those cases quickly and isolate them so they don't spark a bigger outbreak that's uncontrollable. Right. That, that's, uh, that's, a, that's what I'm thinking about with, when you talk about relaxing the social distancing. What, the real question there is, are we ready for the second wave? Because there's always a second wave with this sort of thing. Right. So, so you have to have hospital capacity. You have to have diagnostic capacity. You have to have a well-resourced public health department that can actually do the contact tracing and do the work of finding those cases and making sure that they don't spread them doing the contact tracing and, and having that kind of messaging out there and having them in a place where they're not overstressed. And I have friends in health departments all over the country and they're not sleeping. They're the ones that right. are up even more than the doctors are because they're pulling their hair out trying to trace trace contacts. Those are the three key factors I think we will have. We're not going to have a vaccine for 12 to 18 months. We may have some antiviral therapies, but those are not going to be a panacea. Those are going to be for people who are severely ill in the hospital and maybe decrease the mortality rate, but it's not going to decrease the hospitalization rate. And, and that's, that's the key thing that you have to do. And I do think that there are certain things that are going to have to be modified. For example, mass gatherings. I think that's something that's going to be very difficult to have in the absence of a vaccine, because if you have a, a Super Bowl or you have some big mass event, a, ma a big rock concert, there's going to be ample opportunities to spread the virus there. And that could overwhelm a hospital very quickly if you have a, an event with 50,000 people and you have transmission uh, in it. So that's something exactly. that's going to... And then I also would say that we still are going to need to do or recommend heavy social distancing for those in high-risk groups, the elderly, those with other medical conditions, because they are still going to be susceptible to severe disease. So they almost have to be cocooned until there's a vaccine as best as we can. Well, there's, we talked earlier about uh, the last time we talked, we talked about the South Korean model, which is uh, heavy testing, you know, extremely rapid development of testing. And, and I thought it was interesting you pointed out that testing isn't about 
having a test, you know, a little packet that somebody produced that you can do as a test. It's also about having the manpower to do it and the other, all the other equipment that's required to be safely administering and, and, and running the tests. So it's actually a, a big infrastructure thing that you have to put together. But South Korea did a very good job of, of getting that up and running quickly and uh, having that be used for a large number of people and then combining that with contact tracing. And they've had less of a shutdown in South Korea than we have here. Another example some people are pointing to is Sweden, which had a less extensive form of social distancing. And it's still unclear because they're very, very early on, as from what I can tell, very early on in the epidemic there uh, as to what effect that's going to have. But in both those cases, there's still, it's not a total absence of social distancing. It's a somewhat less restrictive form of social distancing they're doing. Yeah, so you don't necessarily have to have a one-size-fits-all social distancing policy. I think in the United States, we were left with a crisis because our diagnostic testing was so behind that there was no other tool the governor saw at their at their disposal except for to do very heavy-handed blanket social distancing. And if you've listened to Governor Cuomo in New York talk about this, he says maybe I went a little bit too much and maybe there were certain businesses that we did need to shut that could have been modified. So I do think that everybody realizes that this was a blunt emergency tool that they used because of what was happening. And it didn't necessarily have to be be with, with this, the same that that same kind of force that was used in getting the same getting the same result. There are businesses probably that are on the list that are considered quote unquote non life sustaining that probably could be operated safely with social distancing. And I do think, at least in my state of Pennsylvania, there is an exemption process that there's lots of businesses going through that exemption process because everybody realizes that that blanket uh, that blanket designation probably wasn't the correct way to go about this. And and you could do better social distancing, more nuanced, more tailored to, to what the actual risks were. Uh, but I think that in the absence of, of federal leadership, as well as diagnostic testing, you really saw governors take this all on their own and, and kind of come up with their own plans. And I think that we will pay the con that there are going to be consequences and costs associated with that type of social distancing, which could have been done better. But I think that in many ways, uh, they were a victim of really uh, a horrible pandemic response from the federal level from the beginning. And, yeah, and it was it was the slowness of the response, but also the bureaucracy of the response that that prevented the rapid development of testing. Right. So there was when you declare a public health emergency, paradoxically, it makes it harder for a diagnostic test to be made. It makes it easier for a vaccine and antiviral, but harder for a diagnostic test to be made. So everybody had to go through a certain procedure with the FDA, which they don't have to go through normally because because laboratory developed tests don't have that oversight during an ordinary period. But paradoxically, they, they had one when the public health emergency was declared. And I don't think that people realized what the impact of that would have been until people really noticed it. And then they eventually got rid of it. But that that lead time that we didn't have to develop those tests and relying on a CDC test and, and relying on some state health departments was not enough to deal with the bulk of cases that we have. We still have a backlog. We're still not completely above water in terms of our testing. We still have turnaround times that are too long. And there are still backlogs at the major labs like LabCorp and Quest that need to get through. So I, I do think that this is going to be the black mark on this pandemic response. It's something that we did not predict would be what would take us down was our diagnostic testing. Right. And one thing I've, I've also noticed, though, when we're talking about social distancing and, and trying to get people to do the social distancing, I, I've noticed a lot of, you know, one of the interviews I did a, bit a year or so ago was with Tom Nichols, who wrote a book called The Death of Expertise and talked about this sort of lack of respect for experts and this uh, these sort of eager amateurs on the Internet uh, trying to come up with their own theories and saying and explain epidemiology to the epidemiologists. I've seen a lot of that going on on you know facebook or or are you know people come out and saying oh well the, the epidemiologists are all wrong about these projections they're making 
Uh, do you think that has been uh, a problem that a lot of people have been uh, sort of making the assumption that the experts have somehow missed something really big? Yeah, I, I do think it is a problem. There are there are often certain things that I see on there that I think are insightful by non-epidemiologists and not people in the field, and I take them under you know advisement and I think about them and I try to integrate that with the other knowledge I have. But I do think that some people kind of armchair epidemiology quarterbacking this do, doesn't necessarily help, and and there's a lot of assumptions and knowledge that that goes into those models. It's not just like we're we're looking at a disease like it's a video game. There's still a lot of textbook knowledge that we have about how diseases spread in historical context of what happens with influenza or what happened with polio or what happened with this with th these outbreak responses that are conditioning what we say uh, when we project it. And, and I myself disagree with many modelers and many epidemiologists. There's actually heated debates going on in the field that you know people aren't speaking to each other over this right now, <laughs> literally not speaking to each other because we have two different viewpoints on, on this. So it's not easy and, and there are differing views. And this is this is all happening real time, and, it, and it's very um, it's very stressful and very strenuous on on the, de the demands on us to try to understand what's going on and predict what's going to happen, and then give translate that to what you're going to tell patients and what you're going to tell policymakers. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging. Now, when we last talked, you made a, a sort of offhand comment in passing that uh, I found very interesting, which you said you, you we we know we've been ripe for a pandemic for a long time, and. In a way, I'm wondering, is this kind of like a, in a way, a dress rehearsal almost for what, how we'd be ready if we got something that was as infectious or as this and even deadlier? So, so Sam Harris asked me something similar to that, if this was a dress rehearsal, because I was always worried about avian influenza, and that has a case fatality ratio of about 60%. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, I think, but that was early on. And I said, yes, I think this is a dress rehearsal, but I think we've messed up this dress rehearsal so badly <laughs> that I'm even more scared about avian influenza than I was before. So this, the, I guess the, the priority then is to take the lessons from this as we go along and looking back at this a year from now, take a lot of the lessons from this, like the failure of diagnostic testing, uh, which I think is the big lesson, uh, the big uh, the big unexpected lesson, and use those to prepare a much better response for uh, in case something comes along that's even worse than this. Right. So there's going to be a window of opportunity right now after this pandemic or in the midst of this pandemic to get it right, to get our pandemic preparedness actually funded and prioritized by the federal government in a way that it hasn't ever been because they are seeing the consequences right now. So what we need to do is think about pandemic preparedness in a way that we think about national security and try and establish those programs that will be useful anytime any outbreak occurs in the in the future, whether or not it's a pandemic or not, because we can't have this cycle of panic during the, the outbreak and then neglect it. And then when it comes out of the headlines, because that's been happening since anthrax, you know, the anthrax and bird flu and swine flu and Zika and Ebola and Middle East respiratory syndrome, all, all of these things have had this cycle and it's all been reactive and not proactive. And you end up spending more money and ending up with loss of life and and major failures because you have this cycle that has to be built up each time and then it goes away. So we want to, this to be stable. We want this to be a part of, of how we think about pandemic preparedness in the future. And I think it's unfortunate that it took this much loss of life and this much economic disruption and loss to get people to actually take us seriously. And, and I think it would also would be a, you know, we talk about the, the economic loss and the eagerness of everybody to, to end the shutdown and get back to work. This is really becoming an economic necessity to have the preparedness for a pandemic 
so that it doesn't become as disruptive as it has been. Exactly. The, that pandemic preparedness is going to end up being like an insurance policy, something that you're going to do all that you want to do all the time so that you don't end up in this type of situation, that you're able to respond quickly and extinguish these fires before they become these infernos like we have to now. And, and this is something that we've been saying in my field for, for decades and decades. And it's just that the, you know, these reports gather dust and people think they give us a lot of interest in it, but then it doesn't actually translate into actually preparedness because it's not something that people prioritize it's not something that buys vote it's not something that buys them votes and and i think that that's what has to to change this has to be thought of as a core function at least the parts of it where we're talking about where it intersects with national security as a core function of, of government because there, there is a police power of the state that, that has an importance with infectious disease outbreaks and, and trying to control infectious disease outbreaks and I, I think that we're all sort of adjusting you know, the public and the government as well. We're all everybody except the, the specialists who were anticipating this and trying to get people to pay attention. We're all adjusting to the fact that this is unfamiliar territory because really it's been almost 100 years or a little over 100 years since the last big pandemic like this. It's something that's passed out out of living memory. I think that's part of the reason why people are so like, why am I being told to stay home? And they don't, you know, the idea of a quarantine, the idea of, of banning large gatherings, these are things that would have been normal during the uh, flu pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, but they've passed out of living memory and they seem alien to our current lifestyle. And I think that everybody's sort of catching up with the fact that, oh, wait a minute, you mean this can actually happen? I, you know, somebody filed a report somewhere, but people didn't believe it could actually happen until they saw it. Exactly. I think that there aren't we don't have our grandparents that to, to tell us about what happened in 1918. There are there are probably markers in most towns of mass graves from 1918 that can remind people of what happens during a pandemic. But most people don't have any recollection of what it was like to live in an era where there were infectious diseases plaguing them. I mean, hence the anti-vaccine movement, why it has why people don't see the benefit of vaccines, because we don't have we have the luxury of living in a in a society where most infectious diseases are, are basically, uh, you know, you, what you heard your grandmother talk about her, her friends having measles or, or polio. But this is something that's real. These threats have not gone away. They may have increased in many ways because our world is much more connected. We have more mega cities. We have more densely crowded cities all over the world. And we have much more uh, opportunity for these viruses that are circulating in animals all the time to jump into humans and take off very quickly because now they travel at the speed of a jetliner, not at the speed of a steamship. And and this is something we're going to face. And I think it's only to our it's, it's in our self-interest to actually take care of these problems now before they become problem before they get before we have another coronavirus type of thing and remember and even coronaviruses you know in 2003 we saw what SARS could do with just with limited transmissibility how economically disruptive it was and people started to make vaccines but then that cycle of panic and neglect came in and, and those vaccines sat on shelves and now we here we are 17 years later without any coronavirus vaccines or antivirals for humans well well let's hope this this puts it back on the agenda and uh, makes people take it more seriously in the future and uh best of luck to you in terms of you know learning from this and uh spreading the message and and uh, uh figuring out when we can all get back to work safely and uh preparing for the second wave thank you thanks for thanks for coming on i'm rob trusinski this is slime the fuse my guest is dr amash adalja a specialist in infectious diseases thank you for listening